Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, church. It's great to see so many familiar faces, some new faces. If you're newer today, I hope you'll stop by the first time guest tent um, on your way out. And if you're new and you're watching online, maybe somebody shared this link and you're checking us out today, if you would uh, just let us know uh, by writing in the comments. And we've got some people who'd love to connect with you, give you a gift, and uh, let you know a little bit more about our church. Uh, but today we're doing part two in our series called Love Is. Uh, last week we talked about God's love for us, how God loves us with a pursuing love with an unlimited love, an undeserved love, a personal love, a costly love. And today we're going to talk about our love for him. But before we jump into the passage, it's in Mark chapter 12, if you want to jump there in your Bible right now. Before we do that, I'd like to just pray. Pray for our time and open up God's word. Pray for, this is a big week for our country. Uh, just pray for our country. Pray, I know there's people in our, our church that are sick and uh, lots of things that are probably happening with those of you in this room that maybe haven't even shared with anybody yet today. Hopefully you'll be able to share some of those burdens before you leave today. And uh, some of you watching online may feel alone and isolated and I want us to just come together in prayer and uh, lift up each other's cares and burdens. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now. We're thankful for just the opportunity to gather in your name. I know different people come for different reasons. There are some people that want to just be recharged in their faith. There are some people that want to express their worship of you. There are some that this is just a safe place. A safe place just to be in your presence under the shadow of your wings and to feel cared for and loved. And uh, Father, I pray that you would saturate this place with your love today. I pray that everyone, even though we're preaching about our love for you today, I pray that as we study that, you'd continue to pour your love into our hearts at Romans 5.5. 5. I pray for our country. Uh, we're so divided. God, would you bring healing? Would you bring repentance? We've, made, we've even made church about ourselves. Uh, Father, will you, will you forgive us and help us to, to turn back to you? We point people to you, that our faith is ultimately about you, that we're created to glorify you. And God, we would point people to you and uh, that you'd change us, change our hearts, change our minds, and uh, direct us to you. Revive the church, this church, the church in America, and church around the world. And uh, use us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we're doing this series on love, and last week we talked about what God's love is like. We haven't defined it yet, which is ironic, right, for a series called Love Is. We'll get to it, maybe the last week. But uh, today we're going to talk about our love for God. And I want to ask you to think about this question. What's the craziest thing you've ever done in the name of love? Some of you have been in relationships before, and maybe long-distance relationships, and you've done something to go see that person. Or some of you have gotten a tattoo. <laughs> maybe it's not the person you're with today, and you've changed that tattoo, but you've gotten different things you've done. I was reading stories about this this week, and I read about a guy who robbed a Waffle House because of his girlfriend. Uh, and I thought to myself when I read that, I thought, don't Waffle Houses charge like a nickel for a hamburger? Like, if you're going to rob someplace, how much cash can you possibly have in the cash register at, at a Waffle House? Maybe that's why he robbed three Waffle Houses. And then, and listen to this, how sweet this is, he used the money to pay his girlfriend's probation fees. Everybody just say, aw, aw, isn't that sweet of him? I don't know what's the craziest thing you've ever done. Hopefully you've never robbed a Waffle House. And different people have done different things. I've read about one guy who hired a film crew to help him propose to his girlfriend. She said yes, but what he did was really weird. You can look it up. I don't know what you've done. But it got me thinking about my relationship with my wife. I, I love today, I'm head over heels in love with her today, but I started thinking about the beginning of our relationship. And uh, many of you know we met at a Mexican restaurant. She was working there. I came in to apply for a job. Have you ever asked yourself when I've shared that story, why was he looking for a job? Why wasn't he gainfully employed already? Well, let me tell you. What I haven't shared with you is I had recently gotten laid off from the job that I was working. I was a freshman in college. She was a senior in high school. I had been working uh, summer fill-in at General Motors on the assembly line. And uh, I, w I decided to go in and get a job at this Mexican restaurant. And there's this beautiful blonde there. 
and uh, all of a sudden I love Mexican food even more. I was very interested in working in this place. The same day I got offered a job at that Mexican restaurant, I got called back by General Motors and offered to come back and work there. Now here's the dilemma. That job paid three times the amount of the job where the blonde worked. And I was debating, oh, blonde money, blonde money. I went with the blonde. That was a good choice, by the way. I started working, but I didn't even know if I had a shot with her. And we started working together. I got her phone number. I remember the first time I called her. The first time, I'm such a dork. So I'm in college, right? And so she's in high school. I didn't know exactly when she got done with classes. I called an hour before her school even let. I was so excited to talk to her. And just so you know, some of you younger people, we didn't have cell phones. Like, they didn't, that wasn't even a thing back then. We had these devices on the wall. It had a cord attached to it. It was a wild adventure. You never know who was calling or who was going to pick up. It was just this crazy thing. And so I called, and her mom answered the phone. So awkward. And, and so then I did that. I was so excited to talk to her. And then I remember the first date we were going to go on. She said yes to a, a date, and so I didn't have GPS or anything like that. I didn't know exactly where she lived. So the day before, the day that I was supposed to go meet her parents to then find out if I was allowed to then take her on a date, I drove to her house. So before, I didn't even go to her house. I just drove by because I wanted to make sure I knew how to get to the place. <laughs> I was so head over heels in love with this girl. And uh, what I learned was that that love is all-encompassing. It was everything about me. And so when we come to this passage of scripture we're going to look at today, I want to ask you, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, do you love God? But don't answer right away because some of us think different things when we say that. I don't mean you're, you're not like against him or you have some affections for him. But here's the question I want you to think about as we walk through this passage today. Do you have an all-encompassing love for God? An all-encompassing love for God. If you have your Bible, we're going to name Mark chapter 12. And uh, since we haven't been going verse by verse through Mark chapter 12, let me just tell you what's happening here. It's uh, Passion Week. If you don't know what Passion Week is, it's the week that Jesus goes to the cross. On Sunday, he comes in to town and, and they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. On Monday, he overturns the tables in the temple. And so he does that more than one time. And so on Monday, a Passion Week, he does that. And what he's doing is he's confronting the religion of that day. The religious leaders don't like that, by the way. Because he's showing a bunch of the problems that are happening and how they've manipulated religion and it's no longer about God. They make God's house, the temple, a den of robbers and Jesus is upset about that. And so then they get upset with him, but they're afraid of the people. In fact, if you read the Gospels, I was talking to my daughter the other day, we were reading the Bible and it just kept saying they were afraid of the people. They were afraid of the people. I said, they're really afraid of people, aren't they? She's like, yeah. So they couldn't just kill Jesus like they wanted to. Because Jesus is about to do the craziest thing for love. He's about to die for you. Now, lots of people die for people because they love them. But he's about to die on a cross. Now, listen, lots of people have been crucified, though, historically. But nobody like this. Because he's dying for you while you're his enemy. Undeserved love. While we were yet sinners, Christ dies for us. And not only has he died for you individually, he's dying for all of us. He's dying for the sins of all humanity as the wrath of God is poured out on him. And anybody who receives him receives the gift of eternal life. But not only does he die, he raises from the dead. Jesus is risen. That's right. Don't come. You become ready even if it's not Easter. I hope you know that. He's risen from the dead. That's the craziest thing that's ever been done in the name of love. But not everybody was excited about it. He was demonstrating that pursuing love, that undeserved love, that unlimited love, that personal love, that costly love that he has for us. But now what about us? That's what our passage talks about today. Look at it with me. Mark chapter 12. We'll read verses 38 or 28 through 34. 
It says, and one of the scribes, that's an expert in the law, some of your Bibles might say, or it calls him a lawyer. Not a lawyer like, um, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit lawyer. It's like a, a lawyer in the sense they study the law. They know the Bible really well. And so he's an expert in the law. A scribe, it says here in, in my Bible, came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment's the most important of all? So they've been asking Jesus questions, but their intent in asking the questions about resurrection or about paying taxes, it's really interesting if you think about, too, putting this in context. They asked Jesus, and some of you might know this passage, what about paying taxes? And he says, render under Caesar, that's to Caesar. He takes a coin that's got the image of Caesar on it, and he's about to say to us, he says to them, hey, if Caesar's image is on it, give it back to him. If God's image is on it, give it back to him. You and I were created in the image of God. Listen to what he says. Which commandment is the greatest of all, most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, they didn't ask for a second, (laughs) bonus material, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe, the scribe said, this is the only place in the Bible where a scribe or a lawyer or a teacher of the law is is written about as responding positively towards Jesus. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You truly said that he is one, that there is no other besides him, and to love him with all of the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Yeah, you think? Now, they've been asking him questions through here. They're asking about the resurrection. They're asking about taxes. And here he gets asked this question. There's power in asking questions. And we all have questions. In fact, some of you, I see you have kids with you. You, have, you ever have your kids just ask you questions? You wonder where in the world did that question come from? Why is the sky blue? You're like, it's raining. What are you asking that question? Why? Where do babies come from? Ah, oh, I don't want to talk about that right now. Like, where's it? Like, just different things that happen. Or your spouse asks you a question. Do these jeans make me look fat? Oh, I'm doing something. You know, I'm busy. You know, there's no winning. It doesn't matter what I say. Like, it's terrible. Or maybe you just have questions. You just have questions about life. Like, you just wonder. Like, other people live different lives. Like, do vegetarians eat animal crackers? Like, just random questions that pop into your head. Like you have all kinds of questions. And then you hear people say, like, trying to be smart sometimes, can God make a rock bigger than he can lift? It's like, who cares about that question? Let me ask you this. I don't know what you're doing right now. You're at home, you're finishing up your pancakes. Like, listen to this question. Like, this right here. You're playing on your phone, pretending like you're taking notes. Pay attention. If you had one shot, like, put yourself in the situation of the scribe. You have one shot to ask God in the flesh one question. One shot. What are you going to ask? I bet many of us would ask the question that this guy asks. Because this isn't just the most important commandment. This is the most important question you can ask. Not talking about when we get to heaven, we got all of eternity, ask all kinds of questions. God, you have one chance in this life, on this earth, to ask God in the flesh a question. And you know what he asks him? Essentially, the question is this. What's the greatest thing I can do with my life? Many of you have had that thought before. When college or today, midlife crisis, like different times, we're thinking, what's the, what, what is this, what am I doing matter? Is this the best thing? What is the greatest thing? And God says back, love God with all that you are. It's an all-encompassing love. But then you've got to ask yourself the question, why? Why is that the answer? He tells us in this passage, and the first answer is this, that God deserves all-encompassing love. 
God deserves all-encompassing love. This is a famous passage. In fact, if you don't even go to church ever, you've probably heard this before, to love God with all. It's called the all command. It actually comes from the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your strength, all of your soul, all of who you are. It's it's an all-encompassing love. But here's the problem with this passage of Scripture. When you read it in devotionals, you hear different sermons, it usually goes like this. You're supposed to love God with everything that you are. Here's a story of a martyr. Uh, Here's what it looks like to love him with everything that you are. You probably don't do that. Feel guilty, feel guilty. Try harder. Let's pray. All right, we're done. But I want to ask you a question today. What if... Every word in the Bible actually matters. And what if the part that we usually skip over when we talk about this passage of Scripture is the key to understanding this passage of Scripture? What if when Jesus started with what's kind of oftentimes called the Shema, it's, it's the Jewish prayer they would pray twice a day, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's just as important for us to focus in on as the next part about how much we're supposed to love God and what it looks like then to love our neighbors. So what if we spent a little time there and it unlocked for us actually what's necessary for us to have in order to love God the way that we're commanded to love God in this passage of Scripture? Because what is he saying there? In Mark chapter 12, it's in verse 29, if you've got a copy of the Bible right there. He's saying, Jesus answered, the most important is, here, this isn't just like a setup, here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's talking about our view of God. And here's something important for you to know today. Your view of God determines your love for God. The way you view God, your view of God, determines your love for God. And here what he's saying is, this reminder that the Jews would have, that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now what does that mean exactly? Yes, it means that he's one in being, three in person, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but one in essence, one in being, but that's not what's being talked about here. And yes, it's true that the Jews would pray that they lived in these Canaanite, these polytheistic. Polytheistic means there's a bunch of gods, and they're monotheistic, meaning they just have one God. Yes, it's a reminder to them. We don't worship all the other gods that this society worships, and I can talk to you about money and sex and power and all that kind of stuff. But that's not it. What he's saying here, what he's saying is, God, you're holy. There's no one else like you. The Lord our God, the Lord is one in the sense that there's, there is no other. And if we understood how unique you are, how valued you are, how treasured you are, it would shape how much we love you, the way that we love you, and with what we love you. Because we'd understand who you are. Here's the problem. There's a lot of twisted views of God, even in the church, right? You could, if I asked you to write down, each of you here, write down this week five twisted views that people have of God, well, you'd, you'd probably be able to come up with 20. And I was thinking about it this week. I was thinking, like, just ways you think of people refer to God. Sometimes there's, like, a little bit of truth in something, and they exaggerate it, and it makes it twisted. Like, God's gracious, and he's benevolent. But you know what? A lot of people act like, act like grandfather God, was what I wrote down in my notes. Like, we have a grandfather God. He's generous and kind, and, and he's just kind of happy if you show up. See him. Visit him every once in a while. Maybe go to church once a week, or once a month, or a year, or whatever, however often you come to church. And, and it's like, he's just, hey, thanks for coming by. And gives you a little candy, a little grace, a little blessing. The problem is, when you read the Bible, Jesus says, um, if you put your hand to the plow and you look back, you're not worthy to follow me. Uh, if you don't deny yourself, take up your cross, if it doesn't cost you everything, then you're not following me. 
You need to love me more than you love your parents, more than you love your kids, more than you love your family. In fact, your, your love for the people that are in your life should look like hatred in comparison to your love for me. And so that's not actually how God, God is generous. He is kind, but that's not, he's not a grandfather, just happy that you gave him a little attention. Like whatever leftovers were happy to throw his way, he's not, that's not, that's not what he's looking for. Because he deserves more than that. God deserves an all-encompassing love. Some people think of God as a prosperity God. Some of you have seen versions of this, and it's kind of underlying the surface of most of Christianity today in America, even if it's not prosperity gospel. And the ultimate goal there is health and wealth. And so we get the idea that God's goal in your life is your health and your wealth. And the way that's usually presented is, uh, if you don't have that, it's because you need to pray harder, or you need to believe more, and it's really on you. Let me tell you why that's the case, because you're actually God. The God that we talk about is actually just a new age philosophy, is a means to an end. He's not the end. The glory of God's not the end. Knowing God, loving God's not the end. Your health and your wealth is the end, and God is a means in order to get you there. The problem is that's not at all what the Bible says. In fact, we've done that as a, we've made church all about us, we've made life all about us, but you know what? The earth was spinning before you existed. And God was doing fine without you. But then you were created to reflect glory to him, but then we try to take glory from him, and we're glor- the very thing that the Bible condemns, we've made Christianity about. Think he'd overturn the tables if he showed up here today? He's not a prosperity God. He's not a grandfather God or legalistic God. Some of you have been wounded by growing up in a place where you, God's an angry parent. You can never do enough. Just read your Bible a little bit longer tomorrow. Just pray a little bit more. Stop doing whatever naughty things that the preacher came up with that's all based on culture that day. So stop doing that. Here's the problem with that. It puts you on, uh, Pastor Scott Mason did right after uh, a Christmas message. He did a get on a treadmill message. Put you on the treadmill or hamster wheel, like anything where you're moving and you're not going anywhere. Some of you have hamsters as pets. My kids want to get hamsters as pets. What a stupid pet. I'd pay to take rodents out of my house. You want to bring rodents in the house. But then apparently some of you all feel guilty because you got a rodent trapped in an aquarium, so you put a wheel in there, and the thing runs around. It doesn't go anywhere. That's what many of our Christianities look like. So we got a bad view of God. There are thousands of bad views of God. Here's what I want you to walk away with. Your view of God determines your love for God. And if you've got a faulty view of God, no wonder you're not going to have a passionate love for God. You don't realize who he is. He is one and only. That's why Jesus says, when Jesus is teaching, he says, I'm living water. If anyone thirsts, come to me. In other words, I'm satisfying. See, sometimes when love's talked about in church, people will tell you that love doesn't have any emotions, that love's an action. And I understand what they're trying to They're trying to make it not sentimental and realize there's something to back it up. But when you read the Bible, that's not what it says either. There's tons of emotions in it. Why does the psalmist say, when he's talking about an accurate view of God, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires. Those are all emotions. Longings of your heart. I love Psalm 16, verse 11. It says that that in him is the fullness of joy. There's pleasures forevermore. Or or the psalm, I I preached a psalm when when everything first shut down with COVID. Psalm 63, I was standing in the the wilderness in in Getty. We were videoing from my phone uh, for the Sunday service that day. Psalm 63, verse 3, because of your steadfast love, my lips will praise you. Not because you give me what I want, because you're a benevolent grandfather, not because I did enough stuff, because I understand who you are, then I'm going to worship you. And what, what Jesus is saying here, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's no one else like him. And if we'd understand who he is, we'd treasure and value him, and then the love would come naturally. But instead, we've got to be like sold on this idea of loving God, and then how much, and what gauge, and what level, and we ask questions like, you know, how much money do I have to give God? Now, how much am I allowed to give? Because we don't understand who he is. 
He is one. There's no one else like him. I was watching a sermon this week by John Piper. It was from before I was even a Christian. He was preaching at a passion conference. And he was talking to young people about the value of God's holiness. And he used an analogy about gold. He said he had asked his wife, why is gold valuable? She said, because it's rare. He's like, yeah, it's rare, but other things are rare. So there's fish that are rare. You can find them in the ocean. Some people have never even caught some of the fish that are there, but we don't attach value to those. She was like, fish stink, they rot. And he goes, okay, permanence. Gold is valuable because it's rare, because it's permanent, and it's also accessible. And he went on to talk about there are, are rocks that are more rare than gold, but we don't attach value to them because we can't get to them so far beneath the surface. I said, that's interesting because God, there's no one else like him. He's rare. He's actually the only one that's completely and totally permanent because he never had a beginning and doesn't have an end. He's infinite. And through Jesus Christ, he's made himself accessible to us. I think if we realize how valuable he is, we love him. I was talking with somebody about Jesus this week, just a one-on-one, not a sermon thing. And, uh, and I was thinking about it. I thought, I think every time most people hear pastors talk about talking to people about Jesus, somebody trusts Jesus as their Savior. Let me just tell you, as a pastor, that's not what happens every time. And uh, I was talking to a guy this week. He was struggling, asking for help. And we were talking in a public setting. Somebody else overheard us talking and said, don't get mixed up in all that religious stuff. It's not exactly what he said, but you get the idea. And uh, I started to engage him. He was obviously not super sensitive spiritually. Uh, ended up, as we were talking, realizing he was really smart, good at making money. And I just said to him, and I don't suggest sarcasm as a uh, gospel-sharing tool, but I said to him, um, I said, why don't you go make all the money in the world, and then when you're not satisfied, come back to me, and I'd love to talk with you. Uh, but in the meantime, you're obviously not really interested because he was saying some mocking things. I said, but here's a, here's a verse I want you to read. And uh, I gave him a verse. So if you read the Bible, read that verse here, you, you know how to contact me. And uh, then try to talk to the other guy. But um, it got me thinking. So some of you know uh, that to pay my way through school, I, I sold houses. And so I like real estate. And I started thinking, what if one of you here had an open house? And you were selling your house and I showed up. Because I do randomly show up at open houses around our town, even though I'm not uh, looking for a house. So if I show up at your house, it doesn't mean I'm trying to buy it. I just maybe meet some new people. Maybe you got cookies. Like, I don't know. I'm just there learning the market. And so I show up at an open house at your house. And I'm walking through. And I come to a room in your house. Let's say, I don't know. Maybe it's in the kitchen. Maybe it's in a, Let's say you have an office at your house. So I go into the office at your house. And I don't know if you've noticed, but if you have drywall on your walls, which most people do, um, that... Sometimes there's nail pops. They'll kind of start popping through the drywall. I notice one. Start to mess with it, and some drywall falls off. And then I notice there's a little slit, and a little coin falls into my hand. That's a silver dollar. A silver dollar that looks like this silver dollar here, actually. We have a picture of it. It's a 1794. It's called a flowing hair silver dollar. It's actually the most valuable coin in the world. Uh, it went for, in 2013, $10 million at an auction. And you've got it in the wall at your house. I've got some options at this moment. I'll put it in my pocket, that's called stealing, and leave. I can come to you and say, hey, you have a coin that's worth $10 million. Pay cash for the house. Go give them this coin. Tell them you want change. (laughs) Or I could slip it back in the wall, which is probably what I would do, just so you know. And uh, probably tuck it in so it drops back down into the drywall. And I don't have money to buy. I don't know what your house is worth. Let's just say it's worth $300,000. And I don't just have $300,000 laying around. But what I would do is that I would then go sell whatever stuff I needed to sell so I could get $300,000, get a loan, whatever I needed to do. And then I would come and buy your house. In fact, I'd probably say to you, just to guarantee I got the house, I'll give you $350,000. You'd be happy. And so would I. 
Because not only would I own your house, who cares? Knock the house down. I don't care. I got $10 million. Would you say, you're ripping me off? No, no, I'm not. You don't realize how valuable what you have is. The verse I gave that guy when we were having the conversation is Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, where it says, The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. And the guy finds it and he buries it. And in his joy, <laughs> he's not worried about losing everything he has, in his joy, sells everything that he has, all encompassing, so that he can have the rule. That's what the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God in his life, because he's realizing what he's getting. See, I think if we knew the value of God, we would treasure him. And then what's said next in this passage, that he demands this kind of love, wouldn't seem extreme. It would seem obvious because what God demands, he deserves. He deserves an all-encompassing love. He also demands an all-encompassing love. Notice here, this is a commandment. It's the all-command. Mark chapter 12, verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is unique. He's unlike any other. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Here's the problem with this passage is that oftentimes the way that it's taught is here's what the heart is. The heart is the control center of your life. Love him with all of that. Here's the soul. It's your emotions. Love him with all that. It's your mind, it's the way you think, and love them with your thought process. And think, don't have a blind faith, intelligent faith, and do that. And love them with your strength. You've got to do something. You go out and have some action involved with this. Here's what it looks like to live out Christianity. And here's the problem with that. Christianity is not Walmart. Trust me, I know Walmart. I hang out at Walmart. I was at Walmart the other night. Here's how Walmart's broken down. You can buy groceries over here. You can buy tires in the other back corner. There's electronics kind of in the middle, at least the Walmart that I hang out at. And then if you need some medication, they're kind of off to the left. And there's random nonsense in about aisle nine. It's all compartmentalized. And that's what many of us want to do with our Christianity. Compartmentalize our Christianity. So if I ask you, do you love God? Do you love God with an all-encompassing love? Are you supposed to then go through a checklist? Heart, check. Soul, 50-50. Mind, sometimes. But man, stuff I was thinking on the way to church. No. And you know, if you, don't, if you love God with an all-encompassing love, it's because you're all in with God. <laughs> I was telling you about when I first started dating Shanna. One of the things I did is I invited her to come with my church. Uh, we didn't go to the same church um, on a whitewater rafting trip. I don't know if you've ever been whitewater rafting before or not. Uh, but she decided to come, and we went. It was fun. And we're going down this river. And the way these things kind of go usually, and I don't remember the rating system, threes and fives and all that kind of stuff, but we went through the first couple rapids weren't that big of a deal. It's kind of like, bum, 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 a little water in the face. Ah, it's fun. But then the guide stopped us after the first two rapids and pulled us off to the side, still spot in the river, and said, remember, the, here's the commands and whatever they were. I can't even remember what they were. And then tells us all this stuff and says, but if you get knocked out of the boat, swim to the left. Which, looking back in hindsight, I bet you he probably stops every group there and says, if you get knocked out of the boat, because someone always gets knocked out of the boat. At the time, I was like, this is going to be awesome. It's great. Like, I wasn't even thinking. And so I'm sitting in the front of the boat. Shannon's right behind me. There's about eight other people in the boat. The guide, we're paddling. He's yelling commands. And then we go, and we get pushed to this spot in the water where the water's coming down in one direction, but the boat's going in the other direction. Shannon gets pulled out of the boat like it's a vacuum cleaner. Like, she's sucked out of the boat. Shannon. And do you know what I didn't do in that moment? I didn't think to myself, do I love this girl with my mind? I hope she swims left. Do I love her with my soul? It was nicer when she was here than when she's not here. 
No. See, I tell y'all stories sometimes where I'm like catching lawnmowers on fire and breaking stuff. I'm not a total doofus, okay? I'm like 60% doofus, but I'm not total. So in this moment, what I did is she goes under the water, her oar comes up, she didn't come up, so I jumped in. She had a life jacket on, but she was trapped. The water was hitting her from two different directions. It's called a washing machine. She was trapped under there. I grabbed the life jacket, pulled her to the top, shoved her towards the left, and then I floated down the rest of the rapids. Now, if you ever see my wife and I together, do you wonder, what is she doing with him? It's because of that, okay? <laughs> so try it. Take your whitewater rafting, guy. You're dating right now. Take your whitewater rafting. You never know what might happen. You might die, whatever, but if you save her life, it's amazing. But you know what, in that moment, I was all in. I was all in. But you know what else? That was over 20 years ago. <laughs> and so if my wife and I have a struggle today, I don't go, remember the raft! <laughs> and see, some of us live like that with God. Maybe you proposed to your spouse and you got down and you bought him a ring, but then things go sideways. You don't go, but I bought you that ring! Jesus, I, I, I loved you once. There was a time. See, it's really interesting to me the way that the scribe responds to Jesus' teaching. He says, that's true. It's good. And you know what? It's better than whole burnt offerings. Look at that. And sacrifices. Remember, Jesus has overturned the table. He's overturned the religious system on Monday. They're there to trap him because they're mad at him. It's Tuesday. He's going to die on Friday. And the, and the guy says, what you said is better than sacrifices. It's better than whole burnt. Why did he pick that offering? Could have picked grain offerings, could have picked peace offerings, could have picked, there's lots of offerings, read Leviticus. <laughs> it's not real interesting, but read it. Well, you know what's interesting about the whole burnt offering? It was totally consumed on the altar, all-encompassing. Do you know what else? You could offer it at any moment, and it was continual. You could do it every day. The priest would do it on behalf of the people every morning, every evening, and on special occasions. It's you keep doing it. That's what God demands of us. That's what he deserves from us. How do you know? How do you know if it's happening? And that's the last part of this passage and, and this message today. It's, he puts it on display by how we love other people. He deserves it. He demands it. And he displays it. And he displays it through your life and the way that you love other people. And so <clears throat> just kind of the flow of this series is that we talked last week about God's love for us, right? You know why? Because the Bible says that we only love God because he first loved us. And then it says in 1 John, that's 1 John chapter 4 and, and verse 19 and verse 20, it says, if you claim to love God, then you will love other people. If you claim to love God, but you don't love other people, the Bible says you're a liar. And the truth's not in you. And so the way that you see whether you love God, see, loving God isn't this thing. It's like, how do you know if you love, do I just muster up enough love for God? No, you see it by the way you treat other people. And so what we're doing in this series, we talked first week about God's love for us. This week we talk about our love for God. And then for the rest of this series, we're going to talk about what does it look like then tangibly for us to express that and love for other people. We don't want to just jump in and talk about loving other people because then you just go do good deeds. You're nice, you're kind. You know what's radical about this command that Jesus gives here? He takes two Old Testament commands, one from Deuteronomy, loving God, one from Leviticus, loving your neighbor, but what's so radical is that he says the word as. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so just an application question for you today is do you love anybody as much to the quantity, the frequency that you love yourself? 
Because that's the, if we have an all-encompassing love for God, if we understand the love that he has for us, undeserved, unlimited, coming after us, and that he pours that love into us, then we would then love him back, this vertical thing. But then the way you see it, it gets expressed horizontal in the way that we love other people. And we'll talk about who our neighbor is and what it is to love our enemy, what it is to love spouse, what it is to love your literal neighbor. Like, we're going to talk about that in this series. We're not going to apply all that today because it's enough to just talk about loving God. And do you love him? And the way you know whether you love him is if you express it to other people and some of you right now might be sitting there feeling the guilt that I was talking about. So let me give you some words of encouragement. This is what I would do if I were you. If you're thinking, I don't know if I love him as much as I should or as much as I have or whatever your thought process is right now in that. Do what I did when I was at the beginning of this message and I was thinking about my love for my wife. Go back to the beginning. Remember when you first met him? Remember when his pursuing love caught you and he poured his undeserving love into your life, your unlimited love into your life, this personal love into your life, and you loved him because that's, that's actually what Jesus says to a church in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2, he says to this church in Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. And so you, you believe the right stuff, and you do good stuff, and you've endured, and you persevered. And he says this in verse 3, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake. You've not grown weary, but I have this against you. It's the most important commandment. If that's the most important commandment, then it's got to be the worst sin. I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. So what does he say to do? What do I do then? Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent, that means to turn back to him. And do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lamp. That's your influence, your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. And so what we're going to do right now, church, is we're going to communion. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to reflect back on the cross of Christ. But I want to challenge you, too, as we go to reflect and, and deal with any sin that we may have in our hearts. Go back to when your relationship with Jesus began. If you don't know if you have a relationship with Jesus, then, then what you do is, is you ask him to be your savior. You believe that he died on the cross for your sins. You confess your need for him, your need for a savior. You ask him to be Lord of your life. And you can do that right now. You don't need to take these elements. What you need to do is receive Jesus as your savior. But if you've received Jesus, and you're evaluating your love for him, I challenge you in this time when we go to reflect, go back to the beginning of your relationship with Jesus. Whether you were six years old, or 16, or 60, or however old you were when you trusted Christ, Remember that time and say, now with more maturity, with more wisdom, with more life experiences, I want to have that, but the same zeal, the same passion I had when I trusted Christ. Father, will you, will you speak to our hearts? Will you move in our midst right now, I pray? If there's anybody watching online that needs to trust you, if there's anybody in this room that needs to trust you as Savior, that right now they just pray a simple prayer, confessing their sins to you, you can do that right now. Acknowledging their need for you, asking you to be their Savior, asking you to be their Lord. And we know that you promise in your word that, that you will save them. If you do that, if you do that right now, would you just let us know? You can text us on the, on the comment section to say, I just trusted Jesus. Or come up and see me at the end of this service if you're sitting in this room. Uh, and I'd love to just talk with you about how to grow in a relationship with Jesus and how, how big of a deal that decision is. So I hope you'll come talk to me. Father, I pray for those of us in here that are believers in you. Sometimes we don't sing songs like, if ever I've loved you, it's now. Because our hearts are not in that. Our minds are not in that. Our souls are not. 
And Father, I, I pray that we wouldn't just go through motions. I pray that you would You'd empower us to love you. You command us to love you. And so we know that you promise in your word that your Holy Spirit will then empower us to do the things you command us to do. They seem impossible. It's the most important commandment. It's the most impossible commandment to love you with everything we are. Will you empower us to do that? Will you remind us what it is to love you? Will you remind us how much you loved us and how much at one time we've loved you? Have us love you more today than we ever have before. It's in Jesus' name I pray.